Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 368th edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Coming to you on Voice America Business Channel. And we're broadcasting in this our eighth year across the world from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. First of all, I'd like to thank everybody uh, who's inquired about our well-being after the extraordinary bushfires that have devastated a large section of Los Angeles. Um, It's been an extraordinary few days. But we're fine. Our house is fine. But our hearts go out to the people who lost some 7,000 homes in California over the last four or five days. And, of course, our condolences to the families of possibly 100 people or so that have lost their lives. So thank you very, very much for all your best wishes. We really appreciate it. Now, Alibaba broke its single-day sales record and they sold $30.8 billion worth of goods in its 10th annual singles day. Now, that's breaking its own record for the highest sales in a single day, $30.8 billion in one day. Now, to give you some idea of how big that is, it's almost equal to the annual sales of Best Buy, the huge American appliance retailer, and they did it in one day day. Now, the world's largest made-up holiday also grossed about twice as much as last year's Cyber Monday, Black Friday and Prime Day combined. Now, Prime Day, of course, is Amazon's equivalent to Alibaba. And you think Alibaba did $30.8 billion and Amazon's Prime Day did $4.2 billion. So, it just gives you some idea of just how big and powerful Alibaba is. But in spite of its record-setting sale, Alibaba's stock has slid more than 30% since June. Of course, a lot of Chinese stocks have slumped since June. The first year that Alibaba launched Singles Day in 2009, that's nine years ago, the day brought in $7 million in revenue over the course of the day. This year, it took Alibaba 85 seconds to sell its first billion dollars in merchandise and a little over an hour to hit 10 billion worth of sales. So in one hour, Alibaba took more money than Amazon Prime did, well, almost twice as much money as Amazon Prime did in a full day. Now, Singles Day started as a, sing- a simple promotional event for 27 Alibaba partner brands. It's now grown into a massive integral part of Alibaba's overall strategy. They use Singles Day to build hype for their brand. They broadcast extravagant launch parties to engage users. And as part of this year's show, Alibaba had rap artists, they had 
boy bands. They had Cirque du Soleil. They had uh, Mariah Carey, Miranda Kerr, heaps of entertainment, heaps of circus-type acts, and a full-on entertainment extravaganza. It's like Macy's Thanksgiving Day on steroids. It's incredible. The hosts of the event constantly urge viewers to use their phones to check out all the Singles Day deals. And this revealed just how high the Singles Day stakes are for Alibaba. And despite the event's success, Alibaba's shares are down 16% on the year. So <laughs> sell $31 billion in one day and your shares go down. Uh, mm. And the e-commerce powerhouse recently lowered its sales forecasts by 6%. As Alibaba attempts to overcome these obstacles, Singles Days will become even bigger and even more important to the company's success in the future. Still, $31 billion in one day has got to be regarded as an absolutely incredible effort. Now, most Americans believe that the US leads the world when it comes to technological advancement. The fact is, this is simply far from true. In today's world, lots of other countries have got extraordinary technological advances that we don't have. An example of this is the Dubai Police Force, who have now gone high-tech. Dubai Police have now begun training on flying motorbikes so that they can help first responder units get access to hard-to-reach areas or avoid traffic in emergencies, and these will be in operation flying motorbikes. They fly uh, about 10 foot above the ground, and they will be in operation within two years. They cost $150,000 each and can fly for 40 minutes at a time. And they can also fly without a pilot, so autonomously. Now, the battery-powered Scorpion, that's the name of the motorbike, is developed by Russian drone manufacturer Hoverser. And the police are now training to use the motorbike and need to prove that they can handle them before they are allowed to fly them. Now, the Dubai, Dubai police have exclusive rights to as many units as they want. Buyers have to pass a screening test, but they do not need a pilot's licence. They can fly this thing and uh, up to 16 feet above the ground, you don't need a pilot's licence. Civilians will also be able to buy the, the Scorpion from next year, but they will have to be screened to establish that they can use it very safely. They weigh 253 pounds. They're battery-powered and they can fly for up to 40 minutes in its drone mode, carrying 300 kilograms of weight before it needs recharging. It can fly 60 miles an hour at 16 feet above the ground. It started as a crowdfunding project and is designed for extreme conditions. It features a safety system, flight controllers, and special logistical programming. Now, this is an amazing part. Other projects under development by the Russian company include a drone taxi, 
that is capable of fitting within a parking space, so no bigger than a car, and a cargo drone that can carry 100 kilograms of weight. The drone taxi can fly 186 miles at 155 miles an hour. So that's another thing that's in Dubai. So we've got flying motorbikes and flying taxis. And then we've got autonomous miniature patrol cars. So the Dubai's police force is no stranger to embracing new technology. So the autonomous miniature patrol cars feature functionality including facial recognition cameras, live video broadcasting to the operations room, and even a drone companion for additional sight range. They're capable of sensing the environment, navigating without human input, and pursuing criminals. The units are powered with an advanced machine learning algorithm and 3D mapping technology to detect anomalies and avoid obstacles and return automatically to self-charge when they're low on energy. So you've got autonomous miniature patrol cars and they've got a variety of cameras for thermal imaging, facial and license plate recognition and stereo photography. They've got a dashboard for interaction with human security personnel and can be manually needed if needed. They also include a drone that launches from a retractable tray at the rear and can sweep designated areas to increase the unit's sight range. These patrol cars can perform 24 hours a day in all sorts of undesirable roles and they can do routine tasks without holidays, sick leave or training outside the initial setup. These uh, autonomous police cars are expected to begin policing tourist destinations in Dubai before the end of the year. Now, that is pretty amazing. But wait, there's more. Dubai is also introducing robot police officers and they'll begin to patrol in May via a new humanoid autonomous unit that can detect emotions, be used to pay fines and interact with the public. So they can communicate with the public. They, um, they look like robot people. They're pretty cool. The autonomous office, officer stands 170 centimetres tall and I think that's around about six feet. It weighs 100 kilograms, so probably about the weight of an average six-foot-tall person. It's equipped with an emotion detector that can read emotions and facial expressions, and it can adjust its greeting of whoever they're talking to accordingly. It can recognise gestures and hand signals from about five feet away and includes a built-in tablet that can be used to pay fines and answer questions. Wow. The unit utilises Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, 
smart and facial recognition technology to identify criminals and broadcast live video feeds. Get this, it can communicate in six languages. So it identifies what language you're speaking to it in, adjusts its language accordingly, and it can chat, interact, and respond to public queries, shake hands, and even salute. It's been designed to help fight crime, keep the city safe, and improve happiness levels. So you can walk up to it, no matter what your language is. You can ask directions or ask any question you like, and it will answer you in your own language. And that's got to be a major problem in law enforcement, I reckon. Um, police and people they're communicating with not speaking the same language must be a problem. Now, the launch of these crime-fighting tools, which is the flying bike, the autonomous police cars, and Robocop, is a huge milestone towards realising Dubai's vision to be a global leader in smart cities technology adoption. Now, if you think there's only one or two of these things, robot officers will eventually make up to 25% of the Emirates' total police force. So 25% of the Emirates' total police force. So those of you who sit there and think, gee, um, America's so far ahead in technology, you'd be wrong. And uh, it's quite amazing. I you know, things that are happening overseas that we don't realise here. I, when I was um, in Russia just a few weeks ago in Moscow, uh, you walk down the street and there's a florist and uh, they take Bitcoin. And next door there's a chemist and they take Bitcoin. And then you have a supermarket and they take Bitcoin. Um, and people in America are still saying, Bitcoin, oh, it's a flash in the pan, it's never going to work. Um, you know, it's, I find it absolutely astounding, I must admit. Now, do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? You should, because everybody else does. We've got about 1.7 million daily subscribers. It takes about 30 seconds every day to read, and we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology to subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, blockchain, whatever the topical thing that's happening that day is, we try to address it. Now, tomorrow's newsletter has got great lessons for everybody in business. It's the story of how the sharper image went from an idea to a retail and direct marketing goliath that were unbelievably huge, and then they went bankrupt. Now, there's many lessons for entrepreneurs in that story, and that's in tomorrow's newsletter. So if you don't get it, go to my website, bobpritchard.com. That's Bob, B-O-B, Pritchard, P-R-I-T-C-H-A-R-D.com, and enroll. And if you enroll before about 10 o'clock tonight, you will get tomorrow's newsletter. So to keep abreast of all new developments in business and technology and ensure that you're able to compete in this ever-competitive world, 
you need to know what the hell's going on. And the best way to know what the hell's going on is to get the Bob Pritchard newsletter. Now, my guest after the short break is David Sapper, and David is co-founder at BlockBid. He's uh, successfully exited two other tech startups that he founded. He's very successful, extremely smart, and a really good guy. And uh, David will be on immediately after this break. And this is Bob Pritchard broadcasting across the world this week from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. You know, over the last eight years, boy, that's a long time, we've given you insights into the lives of over 350 of the world's most interesting people some fantastic companies. We've talked about what they do and we've tried to find out what it is that makes the entrepreneurs tick. You know, it's extremely rare to find an extraordinary personality or a unique talent or even a successful business with over 97% of all new businesses failing. It's obviously very difficult to create a successful business. So we try to get them on the program and I've got another gem today. Recently in Australia, I had a lovely dinner with a friend of mine and a guy named David Sapper, and he was telling me about BlockBid, a secure exchange with the goal of facilitating the highest volume of trades for the most cryptocurrencies with a single login. You know, I've been in crypto for quite a while, I'm doing an ICO, and you know, it has been, it's getting a little easier. But it's been very difficult to trade crypto. And uh, so we, we got talking and, you know, found out that Blockbit will also support mainstream fiat currencies for more diverse trading. And uh, they're aiming to facilitate trading of more coins on a single platform than any other exchange. Now, the interesting thing I reckon is that BlockBit is scalable up to 1 million transactions per second. That is a shitload. 
and the BlockBit platform's been built to support traders of all experience levels. And BlockBit's one of the first to be fully covered by cybersecurity insurance. Now, a bit about David. David's got a great track record. He's a co-founder at BlockBit, and he successfully exited two other tech startups that he founded. He's um, experienced at penetrating new markets by leveraging his analytical skills. He's quite a serious guy, but he's he's also a fun guy and an interesting guy. And uh, we had a we had a great night. He uses his passion and technical experience to create startups that disrupt the commercial landscape. Then he sells out and makes a shared load of money. That all sounds good. David, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You are being heard all around the world. Thank you, Bob. And as you mentioned, it was a really great dinner to be able to sit down. It was really, really great. Sit down, have a chat, and uh, also discuss with you a passion of mine, which happens to be also a passion of yours for for quite a long time. Yeah. (laughs) So, how does Blockbid aim to create a more transparent and secure cryptocurrency trading platform? I mean, we hear so much about platforms and they seem to pop up all over the place and, and uh, constantly getting hacked. And So how do you aim to create a more transparent and secure trading platform? Well, for us, it was really clear from the onset that we had to build a great foundation. Um, and it came across with a very simple mindset of, bringing stock market-like accessibility, um, usability, and transparency to the cryptocurrency markets. Right. Uh, for us, uh, we, we thought that we needed to exceed user expectations. We needed to exceed uh, the stringent global expectations as well for government regulations or regulatory oversight. And we started creating great alliances and setting the foundation around insurance, usability, and scalability as well. Right. So the, how do you um, protect against bad actors, you know, money launderers or people seeking to finance illegal activity or people just trying to avoid tax? So for us, this, this is actually a partnership that we formed over about six to eight months. We, we were in touch with threat metrics uh, based here in Sydney originally, they're a uh, device ID fraudulent detection monitoring system that is used by the big banks and by their parent company, LexisNexis Risk Solutions. And between both of them, we, we were able to not only provide a full bank grade KYC solution, yeah. we're also able to provide a behavioral monitoral analysis system that works for overlapping different types of data, biometrics, government issues, identifiers, device identification, geolocation, and threat intelligence that really allows us to determine if there are any bad actors and whether there are any money launderers or such that are seeking to finance illegal activity on a site and put a stop to that. Right. And, and you did um, point out that um, this system is to exclude me, right? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, does this extra technology and security create any issues in um, in dealing with 
Blockbed? First, we, we did understand that Blockbed was looking to set the bar worldwide. And the cryptocurrency boom that we're currently seeing worldwide is really taking the steps to move out of the Wild West. Everyone has had this notion that you move into the scene, uh, you potentially you know, invest in a particular project or market and uh, you know, take your money out a day later and buy a house. Yes. And while this does attract you know, the, the various different individuals to the market itself, we, we really want to see the industry grow. And as we've seen in the dot-com boom, as we've seen in many different areas where new technology emerges, there always has to be someone standing at the front and saying, we are there to protect not only the consumers, we're there to also heed the obligatory oversight that is needed by the government as well, or by the regulatory bodies. And we decided to stand there and say, this is us. This is what we're looking for, and thereby attract institutional investors or many other parties that have been sitting on the side waiting for the technology and the industry to mature to the next level before being able to enter the market. Right. I think that's, I think that's beginning to happen. Um, you know, we've been through the wild swings of, of prices, etc., and it seems to me that there's a hell of a lot of the big institutional guys that are getting into crypto now. Uh, and as well as a lot of the big investors, the Peter, Th- Peter Thiel of this world and, and the Drapers and all of that lot, um, investing very heavily. And uh, it seems that the SEC in America is sort of laid off a bit to allow it to mature. And I have a feeling that we're just about at the bottom of the cycle now, I think from here on, or pretty close to the bottom, I think from the rest of the year, there's going to be a fairly solid growth in prices, I think. <laughs> I have been yeah, there before. That, that is very true. And for us, we are on the same sort of boat as well. We have the same feeling. We understood that every single new industry needs to go through a bit of a cycle, a bit of a change, and needs to understand what is the bad, what is the good, and how to look out for the red flags and how to look out for the great projects. Yeah. And the industry over the last five or six years has gone through extreme growth and this is definitely going to attract all different types of people but the the members that are going to participate in this market and are going to help foster the growth um, are looking to not only make sure that the regulatory government bodies which in their jurisdiction are happy but also they protect the consumers um, at the heart and the core of their business as well and it's about becoming that businessman bringing the same sort of um, oversight that financial institutions or businesses are beholden to, to a new and emerging market. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Now, how does the partnership with LexisNexis Risk Solutions, how does that actually screen out people potentially engaged in illegal activity? What, what's, the, what's the process? So what, what we've found in the past that many exchanges have allowed users just to sign up with the email address, there's no identification, there's no knowledge of where that money has come from or where it is going to go. And while this has helped the industry sort of fuel the growth momentarily, it has also has allowed for bad actors. Um, and th- this is where the government wants to clamp down because the process for them is very simple. If there's an avenue for someone to launder money for illegal activity, um, 
that would that would take the hard steps rather than working out the middle ground. And for us, the partnership with LexisNexis Risk Solutions allowed us in real time to monitor users from the moment they come on site by identifying them and having government issued identifiers confirmed by LexisNexis Risk Solutions. And they're using part of the solution of threat metrics to be able to determine if the device itself has been involved in any fraudulent activity. And then it monitors the behavior um, over the course of various different pages to allow us to know if there's any particular interest in the background that is, it could be determined as suspicious activity. So, what's your, what's your view on the um, um, anonymity of cryptocurrency trading? <clears throat> is, it, is it possible or by allowing anonymity you allow bad actors to run amok? So I personally think in, in our instance that there's definitely some degree of anonymity that needs to be held as well. We, we do own the right to our own privacy, to understand what, what we'd like to spend our money on, where we're spending it, and how much we particularly own as well. Blockchain has seemed to have taken that control out of the user's hands. The idea is that your wallet address is available online uh, for anyone to see what is the holdings of that particular wallet. Right. Uh, but the degree of anonymity that we do have is that the, nobody knows who owns that particular wallet address. Right. So while an exchange has the ability to be able to link a particular type of wallet to a particular type of user due, due to the sign-up process, we, we don't retain that data, and that allows us to be able to determine um, that the user from day one, when they have come to the site, is not a fraudulent user. And they can have that degree of anonymity, although... They, it's up to their responsibility to report, you know, their tax obligations to the government as well, and uh, to their juris- according to their jurisdiction, they have to report it. We can help out in allowing you to understand what sort of your tax obligations are, what your obligations are by country as well. But there is always some anonymity that people are going to want, and while there will be some available, the idea behind what cryptocurrency can bring to, you know, the current market is only the start of it. And while some people want to retain anonymity, we're really looking at what could foster many, many different new markets across the world. So are you saying that you can analyze accounts and determine in the main what may be suspicious or illegal activity and you only divulge the name of the account holder if that is the case, if it, if it runs up a red flag? So by using the gatekeeper model of yep. LexisNexis Bridge Solution, it allows us as to determine by the identification that the user has provided whether this person is on the global watch list um, or if there's any issues that may have occurred in the past in regards to this person's ID. And that could be even if there was a, uh, a theft of identity and it was being used by somebody overseas or allowed to determine if this has been reported as uh, stolen. Um, the process for us is that while a user's on a site, if a user's account is behaving uh, erratically, so a normal user, the, the AI system that ThreatMetrics has in the background um, and various other behavioral monitoring analysis systems allows to determine that if a user trades on average, let's say, 
$1,000 per day, and suddenly there's a massive spike of uh, a couple million dollars worth of crypto coming in and being transferred to fiat currencies and being exited, this could potentially be a suspicious uh, activity. And it allows us to, for us to flag a, a report it to the relevant bodies, such as Austrac here in Australia. And the idea behind this is that for the industry to grow, there is always going to be the bad actors out there trying to take advantage. And we want to be the first person where the buck stops. We want to make sure that there's no bad actors on our site. We are there to protect every single consumer on our site as well, as well as meet the obligatory oversight by Austrac and by the ATO as well. Well, I've got, I've got friends. Um, for example, I was talking to a, um, a business consultant, if you like, in, um, in Beverly Hills the other day who is trying to buy... Um, $100 million worth of crypto, uh, worth of Bitcoins. And I also have a number of friends who trade crypto every day and some of them making up to 10 grand a day just trading crypto. So would both of those instances both automatically flag, bring up a red flag so that they were, um, they'd come to some authorities' attention? So this is where the instance, once again, of the alliance with LexisNexis Thrift Solution helps us out in so many different formats. Because by allowing the device ID um, of the user to be identified and compared to, you know, various other different sites that they, they, they surf across the web and allowing to determine this user is not a bad actor, our systems can automatically determine that while there may be a large transaction or a large amount of volume for their account, it is not out of the norm for them. Right. The idea behind that is that we are looking to protect compromised accounts. Uh, a user that doesn't particularly behave in this, in this aspect, they don't normally trade these type of markets, they don't normally try to extract large amounts of money at a certain time. Most bad actors are looking to try and move money in various uh, particular ways. And this allows us to create policies around the network that allows us to determine what ways we can work with to understand what is a bad actor. Now, we, over time, understand those policies better. They become more granular as well and allow us to protect not only the good users, but allow us to make sure there's no false positives as well. Right, so then you say that you um, implement similar controls to the biggest banks in the world. Um, while... I can see why that adds credibility to crypto exchanges um, to some degree. Banks do not have a great reputation for doing much, and most people hate banks. Do you, do you, yes. think, do you think that is a, um, a negative towards cryptocurrency exchanges? Well, what we have thought of was very simple. Um, well, we had this idea in our mind that we needed our users to feel secure, that we wanted them to trade with confidence and to really bring that across to any user that interacts with our exchange. And we realized over time that as human beings, we, we have this sort of checklist in our mind that allows us to determine what we feel secure about. If you go to a new website to purchase a new item, um, as long as it's a secure connection, you, you, you have this mental tick in your mind. When you put your credit card in to purchase a 
particular item. If there's a PayPal checkout, it allows you to have this second mind. And the reason why you feel safe interacting with that site is because you've become used to this process that you are looking for personal protection. You are looking that when you are going to spend your hard-earned money or you're going to trade on a particular site or interact with a particular site, if there is any bad actors in the background acting on that site where they may potentially uh, take credit card information, take your data, there is someone that is going to protect you. And we wanted to offer that same sort of protection. We want, wanted to let our youth know that they've come to our site, that no matter which way you interact, if there is any possibility of bad actors taking your, uh, taking your ID or identification or stealing any, sort of any part of your crypto as well, we can weed them out and we will protect you as well. And providing that same confidence and that same peace of mind that you have when you interact with other sites. Right. So... How could cryptocurrency change banking regulations? And does cryptocurrency mean the end of banking as we know it? My, my personal opinion, um, and I'm sure shared by many others, is that cryptocurrency will probably enhance the current market. We, we are already seeing a change around the world of the way that we handle money. We've become a much less cashless society. Uh, we've moved a lot over to using our cards or our phones, particularly in Australia. We've recently moved over to the system of tap and go. Yep. It's uh, right across Australia allows us to uh, spend up to $100 without putting a pin in just by tapping our card at the register. Yep. We, we are becoming increasingly more reliable in various technologies that have been tried and tested and this reliance on these technologies has allowed us to, the, allowed us to sort of move forward at this blazing speed. And cryptocurrency, while it's still being explored, can allow us to go to the petrol station and fill up the car without ever having to go inside to pay for it. Our car potentially has cryptocurrency petrol credit. It automatically syncs with the pump when you go there, and then you get to leave. And this allows us to just have an idea of where potentially help us out. And while there may always be, you know, the banks, there may always be the federal institutions or the federal reserves, cryptocurrency could help enhance what is already out there and take us to the next level of where we find that we're merging a large amount of our wealth into the digital world. I've got a number of friends that have businesses that operate internationally and a lot of them now pay all their international accounts with Bitcoin or some form of crypto. Um, so it seems to me that one area that was the preview purview of the banks, which was international money transfers and all that area, is going to be gone to the banks. Yeah. I've got, well, I've got other friends that are involved in... Um, using bit, um, blockchain to match people who want money with people who have money um, without going through a, a bank or through a lending institution, and that's getting to be quite prevalent. Um, I've got an investment in a company called Ula La, which is um, creating um, um, loans for undocumented, unbanked, uncredit-carded 
people in the United States. And that's a $2.3 trillion a year market that is being done now by blockchain and, again, taking out the banks. So the, it seems to me the days of – I mean, banks make money by – you walk into the bank and they say, oh, welcome, have a cup of tea, have a biscuit, have a bowl of water for your dog. We'll give you 1% on your money. And then you go home and you come back five minutes later and you say, hi, I'd like to borrow some of that money I just gave you and buy a car. And they say, sure, here, have a biscuit, have a cup of coffee, have a bowl for your dog. That's 8%. And they put the 7% in the middle in their pocket. Well, blockchain eliminates all that bullshit, doesn't it? Ah, oh, it most definitely will. And the, the the timing of this market to where we are currently in the world uh, regarding our trust basis model is, is amazing because over the last five to ten years, we've seen this switch over of where we, we don't particularly trust a restaurant, we don't particularly trust a model, we don't particularly trust what a salesman has been telling us. And we've been going online and we've been waiting to read a review. We've been uh, logging into websites to understand where we have this peer-based trust model. We use Airbnb, we use Uber, we use Yelp, um, to, and all these formats of, of purchasing online have come about from a peer-based trust review system. The sad and this part, is, of course, the sad the part about, thing of blockchain. The sad part about that is that um, I was speaking to a guy um, that works with Yelp and 80-something percent, 85 or 86% of all of the um, testimonials on Yelp are bullshit. They're all made up and put up by either rivals of whoever's being evaluated or people who are involved with people who are, <laughs> are um, being evaluated. So you can't trust any of those either. And that's where blockchain can come and help us out. It allows you as a user to provide a review to a restaurant that cannot be faked. Um, it's using from your particular address, you know, people have known the address can provide reviews to certain different sites or certain different products as well. Yep. And it allows you to once again um, live in this world where we can trust the consensus, we can trust the, the, the public trust that's been provided to this item or to this particular shop or restaurant as well. It is really amazing and the amount of growth that this industry has seen right across different sectors uh, has been phenomenal. Uh, as you mentioned, everything from, uh, you know, empowering people that have, have been have been part of, you know, the, what we call the unbanked until now, to everything across to the trucking industries, to the financial industries, and we are only at the start of the cycle. Yeah, that's right. I agree. Um, I've, I've just written a newsletter you know, my daily newsletter. Do you get that? I do. I most definitely do. Now, what you're supposed to say now is because you're being heard all over the world, you're supposed to say, I love it. It's fantastic. It's the first thing that I look at when I get up in the morning. <laughs> For me, it's actually, it is actually one of the first things I look at in the morning. But here in Australia, it is one of the first things I do get as well. It is very different than any other newsletter I read. It is straight to the point and actually provides me insight on a very quick way to a particular problem or a particular issue that you've uh, come across or has been actually very, very interesting for me. Thanks, mate. I appreciate that. <laughs> un un unprompted. Um, yeah, I've, 
And I wrote that uh, it seems to me that the, the big player over the next few years is going to be Ethereum because um, most things, irrespective of the industry or the application, seem to be being built on the Ethereum platform. Do you agree with that or not agree with that? Or I've always been a great believer of Ethereum myself. Um, the founder... Um, I don't think you saw where it was going to go. The idea of being able to build decentralized app, now to build tokens based around smart contracts. Yes. Um, it's still being explored, but you have more people involved in, in trying to understand what is available and what, what is the opportune moment to be able to create a token and what's the best way to be able to create one as well. Um, it's, it's been amazing to watch the growth. We, we are very fortunate at our company to have one of 59 certified Ethereum developers in the world working for us. And I always, you know, have a moment to sit down and have a chat with him and discuss with him. He thought as well, because 2012 or 2011, so, so now the, the difference in where the network has gone and where it has been, and the process of us being about 70%, I think, of all traffic within the cryptocurrency space is occurring on the Ethereum network, it is not something you want to miss. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, what are, um, what's Ethereum doing about its um, transaction speed problems? There is processes of scalability. Um, the issue is with upgrading the network, everyone has to agree. Uh, otherwise, they can't can occur a fork, yes. um, as we've seen many times before. And while many people do agree to the various upgrades, what, what we're finding is that as the network grows larger, it, it's, it takes a bit longer to implement upgrades because the, the, the various people that may have certain parts of control, uh, to a small extent, may not agree always to various upgrades. And there always will be a process that when you leave it in the public hands to determine a yes or a no, not everyone's going to agree to move forward in a particular direction. And while that is great um, to allow the control be handed back to the public rather than a single institution or a single third party, it does also allow us to open the doors of indecision sometimes. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Yes. Scalability is always going to be an issue as we are finding that step by step, you know, the network is growing larger, more people are starting to use us. Um, although we are also standing behind it as well and working our way through and everyone is contributing to the best way possible that they can find um, various different areas that they can help out in as well to be able to make sure that not only does it still scale up, but the people behind us who have either said yes or I said, no, I can understand what direction we're trying to take it in to bring about improvement security, reliability, and, uh, and scalability being a large one as well. Yeah. So how could your trading platform attract the usage volumes of cryptocurrencies globally? Because we're playing, a global, we're playing in a global pond, aren't we? So um, what's going to be the thing that attracts people to your trading platform? The security and compliance focus, along with the insurance that we're offering to protect our users against any potential bad actors and cyber attacks, uh, not only will attract the legitimate customers to our site, but also institutions that are focused on protecting their reputation. And 
by also partnering with BizBread as a liquidity, liquidity provider, it positions us on a global stage to be able to interact with our customers worldwide. Yeah. What's to stop um, another trading platform in the room next door saying, ah, oh, shit, what they're doing is really cool. We should do the same thing. What's to stop them just um, doing the same thing? For us, there, there is a few partnerships that are obviously quite exclusive to us, but we don't feel that a competition will necessarily be a bad thing. Competition is what uh, helps drive down prices in various different sectors and various different markets uh, to allow the users to be able to gain the advantage. And, and that is what fosters the growth. It's the users enter the market being able to have the ability to be able to interact or to be able to purchase an item um, at a non-exclusive price. And we, we've seen this right across with most of the exchanges worldwide. The, the, the cost per transaction, the withdrawal cost, the, the onboarding time has all gone down right across the board because there are other players that are entering into the market. Sure. And we're finding the focus on support, which is we, where we are really, really looking to be able to hand our customers whatever they need to be able to understand, not only the market and the coin in the background, but any help right across the board as well. And that's going to be a critical key point of difference. I'm going to launch an ICO. I'm sitting out there and I think, I'm going to launch an ICO. What are the most important things um, to consider when you're launching an ICO? For us, we've found that the team was really one of the key elements in launching an ICO because we're not just buying into the project, we're buying into the people that are making it. I agree. And we, we've seen so many different formats. We've seen various different companies get out there and fail because they thought that, you know, making a big splash is all that they needed. Yeah. But for the person sitting at home and looking at your website or someone sitting in a company and looking to invest, you, you've got a mixture of a Kickstarter and an IPO sort of model. You, you, you've got to speak to each person individually. And what they want is to be able to understand why and who is doing that and what you're trying to bring to the market and how you're trying to disrupt it. So the main process for an ICO nowadays or token generation uh, events as they call it nowadays as well, is not just about the flashy um, you know, website and the flashy white paper. It's really understand your market, really understand the team that you bring in to build as well and whether you are going to make a change by bringing this to the blockchain. And right. if you are, the, it, your merit, it stands on its own merit. Okay. David, we've just about run out of time. Um, how does anybody who wants to get involved with BlockBid, how do they give you money or how do they find out more? Just by going to the um, website, which is blockbid.io, or what else can they do? That's correct. They can also join our Telegram room. Uh, the three founders and our chief marketing officer are in direct contact there. Right. Uh, almost around the clock as well. And they can ask us questions if they like as well. Um, but yes, definitely through, through blockbit.io. If they have a question, they can send an email to info at blockbit.io and it'll be sent to the rele uh, relevant sort of parties within the company if they have any direct questions for myself or any of the other founders. Or through Telegram. That is correct. Telegram, we feel, it provides that sort of process where they can contact us directly, sure. sort of on a chat form basis, 
and speak to the three founders and also our chief marketing officer as well. Terrific. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, David. I look forward to getting back to Melbourne and, and having another evening out, nice meal, a few wines and a great chat. I look forward to that. Thank you. And thank you so much as well, Bob. It's been great to actually have a chat with you. It's a pleasure. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice American Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking. Absolutely no, no bullshit business radio show. We're coming at you on Voice America Business Network. We're broadcasting today from Hollywood Boulevard in the technology and entertainment capital of the world, Hollywood, California. Blockchain technology is currently being used for a wide range of things, including distributing aid to 100,000 Syrian refugees. It's being used initiatives to end child trafficking and to provide a range of services for women and girls because blockchain allows digital assets such as cryptocurrencies to be traded and transferred without having a bank involved. So blockchain may offer solutions to the 1.7 billion people in the world who don't have bank accounts, who don't have credit cards, the 1.7 billion unbanked adults. And that's 33% of the world's population. And they're predominantly low-income people and women unable to access financial services. In America, 15% of Americans over 15 don't have bank accounts or regarded as unbanked. But the problem is much more acute in developing countries. Without access to financial services, people are forced to take informal loans at very high interest rates, save their money insecurely in cash, and make risky journeys to hand over money to pay bills or to do business. Blockchain could lower barriers to financial inclusion, it could enable new models of entrepreneurship, and it could fuel the dreams and ideas of billions of the unbanked. And of course, financial inclusion efforts have previously been revolutionised by technology, particularly by mobile money. The best known is Kenya's M-Pesa, which is unbelievable. It, proce- it processes 6 billion transactions a year and has been adopted by the vast majority of Kenyan households. The service allows money to be posited in an account linked to a customer's phone number and then used to make payments or sent to other users via text messages and converted back to cash. It's had an incredible transformative impact on Kenya. M-Pesa has lifted 2% of Kenyan households out of poverty to date. But unlike M-Pesa, blockchain's not designed for low-income customers. 
For inclusive financial services to be sustainable, providers need to be able to reach enormous numbers of people through low-cost and very reliable transactions that the people can understand. And blockchain can't offer this because Bitcoin can process just three to seven transactions per second, while Visa can process 24,000 processes per second. So for any financial service to be benefit to the poor, consumers must understand it and they must be protected from abuse. No question, blockchain's immutable. Nobody can change the accounts. Admittedly, blockchain makes use of smart contracts which automatically carry out transactions when certain conditions have been met. And smart contracts improves trust among customers who know financial institutions are going to be held to their promises. However, leveraging of mobile ownership, which is more than 100% in many developing countries, is accelerating financial inclusion. In sub-Saharan Africa, 21% of adults now have a mobile money account, nearly twice that of 2014. A study in Kenya found that access to M-Pesa allowed women-headed households to increase savings by more than 20%, start, start small businesses and reduce extreme poverty by 22%. M-Pesa did not achieve this with cutting-edge technology. Rather, it made use of basic technology that does not even require internet access, phones. So banking correspondence and neighbouring their neighbourhood kiosks, basically, and small businesses equipped with simple technology to carry out basic transactions on behalf of banks. Introduced in India in 2006, banking correspondence in 2017 represented more than 90% of banking outlets. So addressing the unbanked problem with cell phones rather than blockchain just goes to prove that new is not always better. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and it's much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Anybody can do the ordinary. People that are normal are usually boring. I hope you can join me again next Tuesday when I'll again be broadcasting from our studios on Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood where technology meets entertainment. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative to success really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.